the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the June 2015 podcast. This month, how violence by teachers against children in Ugandan primary schools has been almost halved thanks to a specially designed toolkit. We found that children in primary school experience of physical violence there was nearly universal. We'll hear about a study that suggests Europe's most homophobic countries may be paving the way for a rise in HIV cases among gay and bisexual men. The big important observations of the study is that equality doesn't guarantee prevention. And are you what your mother ate? Epigenetics discussed over a pint of science. Our genomes were affected by what our mums ate at the time of conception, and even more interestingly, of what our father's mother ate at the time that our father was in the womb. Recent national surveys in some African countries suggest that violence from school staff towards children may be an important yet overlooked problem. In Kenya, for example, more than 40% of 13 to 17 year olds reported being punched, kicked or whipped by a teacher in the past year. Dr. Karen Devries from the school told us about the encouraging results from the recent Good Schools study, which evaluated a program designed to prevent violence against children in Ugandan primary schools. Uganda, like a number of other countries, actually doesn't have nationally representative data on the levels of violence. But what we were able to do is we did a, a quite a high-quality study in one district, the district where we are working currently. And there we found uh, that children in primary school, so aged about 11 to 14, um, experience of physical violence there was nearly universal. So more than 90% of children reported having been victimized by a school staff member. That seems absolutely shocking. This is violence by adults in positions of responsibility against the children in their care. Yes, yes, it is. Also, considering the Ugandan context, though, this form of violence, um, similar to other places, is actually fairly normative. So people have the idea that physical violence is necessary to discipline children to ensure positive child development and well-being, uh, whereas we know uh, from research evidence from a lot of settings that actually the reverse is true. When you go about trying to study an intervention or deliver an intervention, mm. how do you do that? What was the intervention and how did it work? So our partners, Raising Voices, um, are highly skilled at um, developing and delivering these interventions um, that do a great job of, of actually um, motivating social change on the ground. The approach that they've taken in this study, um, which we found to be quite effective based on our research, um, was to really take kind of a whole school approach. So they're not just going in and working with you know, one group of people. They're actually engaging with school administration and staff. Uh, they're engaging with students and then also with parents and community members to really try and create change and impart some new ideas about positive discipline. That's a pretty big cultural change. What sort of things were they trying to say? Not like, don't beat kids. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or was it as simple as that? <laughs> you know, that's an approach that they've found that has been quite unsuccessful, you know, going in and, and telling people what not to do. 
uh, we know in terms of behavior change actually doesn't really work. So they take a phased approach. Um, so what they're doing at the beginning is trying to introduce just some new ideas. And rather than going in and saying, don't beat children, it's encouraging uh, people to think about how they actually want children to develop, getting them to reflect a little bit on their own power and their use of power and then trying to sort of bring everyone around so that everyone's on the same page about what kind of outcomes for children that they want. Um, and then subsequent phases kind of involve them providing some tools uh, to help people achieve those goals that they've set. Can you give me an example of some of the things that are involved in the toolkit? What would some of the, the adults, the children, the parents, the staff be experiencing or doing? The toolkit is exactly that, a toolkit, and it has a, a wide selection of different activities and materials, um, and it's designed so that schools can kind of pick and choose what works for them to implement. But one example of an activity that, that is in there is around the creation of a, a student court. So in schools, uh, a, a number of students are actually invited to take some ownership over discipline um, by creating a, a court committee that hears cases and tries cases and hands out punishments to the students that um, don't involve physical violence. Uh, so these are sort of, in practice, we find minor misdemeanors, like a student has stolen a pen or something like that. Um, so that's a case where ordinarily this might have resulted in um, some light corporal punishment from a school staff member. In a good school's school, um, that student might now be referred to the court um, and have their case tried by their fellow students. They delivered this intervention in, mm -hmm. uh, in Uganda. How did you find out if it had worked? How do you go about evaluating this and what did you find? Uh, so this intervention, because it's working with um, a number of different sort of uh, groups of people, uh, is quite a complex one to try and evaluate. So uh, what we did was to use the, the most rigorous methodology available. Um, so we did a cluster randomized controlled trial. So that involved taking uh, a group of schools from one district and then randomly assigning them to either get the good school toolkit intervention or to be a control school. And our control schools will be receiving the, the toolkit intervention um, around about now, at the end of the trial. We've used this trial methodology and we've gone out and surveyed um, students themselves. Uh, we've talked to school staff members. Um, we've also talked to some caregivers of the students. Um, and we've taken all that information and put it together and looked at patterns in, in people's reporting on the levels of violence. And what did you find? Was it successful? Mm -hmm. We found actually that it was highly successful and we were really quite excited by the result because in, in public health terms you actually don't often see um, interventions that are this effective. So we actually had a very, very large reduction in violence. Um, so comparing those intervention schools with control schools, uh, what we found was that um, at the end of the study, the control schools who didn't get any of the toolkit, 48.7% uh, of children in those schools reported being beaten by a staff member in the past week. Whereas in the intervention schools that did get the toolkit, 31% of children reported being beaten by a staff member in the past week. That's still a third of children experiencing violence. What next for this? Is there other plans to yeah. roll it out further or to try and reduce those levels even further? Yeah, so the, I mean, you're exactly right. So although that is a very large reduction, and I think you know we can all be 
quite pleased with that. And this program really is a promising strategy to try and reduce violence in these sorts of settings. It's quite clear that a lot of work still needs to be done. Um, so we still have 30% of students reporting that past week violence. In the past term, 60% of students are reporting violence. So it's still going on. I think one of the things we're looking at doing is um, to explore the effects of this intervention if it is implemented over a slightly longer time period to see if we can reduce those levels of violence even more. That was Karen Devries, and you can hear an extended version of that interview via our website at lshtm.ac.uk. The London School of Hygiene and Trauma Medicine podcast. According to new research published in the journal AIDS, Europe's most homophobic countries may be paving the way for a rise in HIV cases among gay and bisexual men. An international team of researchers from Europe and the US looked at HIV-related service use, need and behaviours among 175,000 gay or bisexual men living in 38 European countries with differing levels of national homophobia. They found that men in homophobic countries had fewer sexual partners and were less likely to be diagnosed with HIV. However, they also found those men knew less about HIV, were less likely to use condoms and are at greater potential risk of getting HIV when they do have sex. Dr Ford Hickson is the co-author of the study and told us more about its background and results. This study links three pieces of data really, some national data collected in the country by ILGA, the International Lesbian and Gay Association, which is a kind of measure of state homophobia or homo-friendliness alongside some social attitude survey. So that's the first set of data about the state of homophobia or heterosexism in different European countries. We then have a lot of outcomes related to HIV, HIV prevention needs, HIV service use, HIV diagnosis, HIV related sexual behaviours and research has already linked those two sets of data together. What we were particularly looking at was the role of the closet as mediating that relationship. So the main, the main theory or the main data about mediating the relationship is around internalised homonegativity. Homophobia makes people feel terrible, results in lots of negative outcomes. What this paper was looking at was the role of the closet. Homophobia keeps people socially concealed, results in lots of negative health outcomes. And we found a lot of support for that, that mediating relationship of the closet. How, how did you go about classifying how homophobic a country is? Uh, we used the International Lesbian and Gay Association's index and the social attitudes surveys. Uh, so it's a combination of, of uh, data sets that we took from somewhere else. We didn't generate those data sets. But we looked at 38 countries which is the, the number of countries that we polled in EMIS in 2010 and the rest of the data comes from EMIS from 2010 which was about the proportion of men who are uh, thinking about all the people that know you what proportion know that you're attracted to men is the, the identity, the concealment question and the majority of men across Europe in the survey were out to most people that they knew but maybe a, a a quarter, less than a quarter, were increasingly what we'd call in the closet. The survey was done on the internet, 
the majority of men came through gay dating sites, gay websites. We had to use a, quite a large number of different sites because there's no site that is equally used all across Europe. So it was a kind of patchwork of uh, popular sites at the time. I meant more as opposed to dating websites, more dating apps. In 2010, the first year spatial app, Grinder, only really came onto the scene in 2009. Okay. So by 2010, only early adopters would have been on it. It was fast, but it wasn't that fast. Okay. Uh, so in 2010, the majority are from PC and laptop-based websites, which don't locate where people are relative to you, which mm -hmm. is what the new, the, 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 the big change since then has been about locating people in your proximity. Mm -hmm. So what was the volume of your, of your database? In we had 180,000 gay and bisexual men and other men who have sex with men across Europe. 18,000 of those were in the UK. So now in terms of results, can you outline the sort of main results out of all this? The main results are that HIV outcomes are associated with state and national homophobia and that the mediating, one of the mediating factors of that relationship is sexuality concealment or the closet. One of the big surprises in the study was that although the service use outcomes and the needs outcomes and the behavioural outcomes were all poor in more homophobic countries, they, they were all worse, the actual level of HIV was lower in more homophobic countries and that was both a surprise and a challenge to uh, interpret. How so? Well, if, if services are worse, prevention needs are worse, precautionary behaviours are worse, then you'd expect there to be more HIV, but there wasn't. The countries with the highest degrees of equality tended to be the countries with the highest degrees of highest levels of HIV amongst their gay and bisexual men as well. One of the big problems with interpreting it is we're looking at prevalence in cross-sectional data, so we're actually looking at the outcome of a large number of historical processes. So the, the prevalence of HIV now in a country is the result of decades of uh, events and processes building up to it. And those have been very different in different countries. Uh, what's more important is what we take from the, the observations for the way we take prevention in the future. So that leads to my next question, which, which is going to be how these findings can be used that sort of maybe education, but you know, policy as well. Well, in terms of the UK, one of the big important observations of the study is that equality doesn't guarantee prevention. And we have made fabulous strides in uh, both gender identity and sexual orientation uh, equality in this country. Uh, but our, our HIV prevention uh, picture is, is ambiguous successes in some places, not such great successes in others. Overall, we have a high, high level of sexually transmitted infections and HIV in our gay bisexual men. What the study kind of points towards, in terms of equality not being sufficient for prevention, 
is is that we we could do with maybe a refocus of energy on reducing harm around sex lives. That was Ford Hickson. Finally, we've long been told that you are what you eat. But recent evidence has shown that it might be true that we are what our mothers ate. Although we are stuck with the genes we inherit from our parents, the way they are decoded can change. This is the science of epigenetics. It describes the way in which genes express themselves and how this can be altered by influences of our environment right back to the time of conception. We spoke to Andrew Prentice, Professor of International Nutrition at the school, about how this epigenetic code might be unlocked and how the diet of our mothers, and perhaps also our grandmothers, can influence our lifelong risk of disease. He told us more at the Pint of Science Festival, where he was explaining his latest findings to an audience in a local pub. So, are you what your mother ate? Let's um, see what this is all about. So we've been working in the Gambia for many, many years. It's an amazing site in the middle of the bush, which the MRC has been supporting research there for uh, almost 70 years, so quite unique. And we've got a fantastic partnership between the local community and we, the medical researchers, which has allowed us to come up with some, some very exciting new findings. Of course, what we're trying to do the whole time is to improve the health of mothers and babies. So it's all about maternal and child health and really trying to discover what would be the best way of enhancing pregnancy, the survival of babies and, and their growth and, and health. You're about to give a talk tonight called Are You What Your Mother Ate? I'm really intrigued. Tell me more. Yes, so that's a, a, a catchy title, but on a very important issue. Um, it's all about epigenetics. Now, most people would understand what genetics is about. Fewer people know about epigenetics, although it is now becoming um, much better known. So the epi in epigenetics means on or above genetics. And the story is that the way that our genes express themselves can be altered by marks that are laid down on the genes. These are very complicated and there are various different kinds of these. But the intriguing thing for us is that some of these marks, called methylation patterns, require a series of nutrients to lay, be laid down properly. So what we're looking into is whether the mother's diet at the time of conception affects the epigenome and hence the health of her, her offspring, of her baby. So how might it affect the health of her baby? Well, the theory is, is that if there weren't enough of the nutrients that are required to lay down these methyl marks, so that would be, for instance, folic acid, choline, betaine, riboflavin, vitamin B6 and B12, then the system would go wrong. And indeed, we've got some excellent evidence that that has occurred. What we've managed to do is to take advantage of a, a lovely experiment of nature. So the Gambia has two seasons, a dry season and a rainy season. And the foods that people eat are very different at these times of year. So this gives us a wonderful example to see how that natural change has affected the epigenome of babies born at different times of year. And it's come up with some really remarkable results. The day that a baby is born in determines their, the, these labels on their, their genes. Um, give or take, of course. I'm talking in generalities here. 
But babies born in the dry season have a very recognizably different epigenome to those that are born in the wet season. And they carry with that, that with them for the rest of their lives. And what we're now showing is that this is very likely to have effects on their immune function and possibly even on their susceptibility to cancers. And do you think that the kind of effects you're seeing could apply to children born outside the Gambia? Or, or are there too many other complicating factors there? No, very definitely. We just use this nice experiment of nature as a way of interrogating the biology. Now that we've found it happening there, we're, we're, you know, it, it's virtually certain that these things will be going on elsewhere. And uh, indeed, I would speculate that you and I, as we sit here, our genomes were affected by what our mums ate at the time of conception. And even more interestingly, of what our father's mother ate at the time that our father was in the womb. So there are complicated things going on, but we can certainly have strong evidence for an intergenerational effect. So I am affected by what my paternal grandmother ate uh, when she conceived my father. Are you making this up? No, 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 no. This is genuine stuff. Um, and we, we, we understand a lot of those pathways. I have to say that last bit I've just mentioned is a little bit controversial, but I think we've, got, we've actually got some strong evidence that this is true. But that's absolutely fascinating. So run me through how that would work, the epigenetic traits being passed from one generation to the next. So a man's sperm, the, every day he produces sperm, it comes from germ cells that are within his testes, and those are laid down in his fetal life. And so every new sperm that's created comes from a, a sperm cell that was laid down during his feet when he was a fetus, and that is affected by his mother's diet. It's, yes, it all makes sense. It's just absolutely astounding. What do you think the end result of what you're looking into will be? Recommendations for diet for grandmothers? Or? Well, uh, let's move away from the grandmother issue, because although that's fascinating, I, I would emphasize that that's a little bit controversial. What's much less controversial is mothers. So let's just concentrate on mothers. Now, I think everybody knows about folic acid and uh, avoidance of neural tube defects. So mums-to-be are recommended to take folic acid before they conceive, and that reduces the risk of having a baby with a neural tube defect. Our belief is that this story is about more than folic acid and more than neural tube defects. We think if we can get the diet of a mum right before she conceives, then she has a very good chance of having a healthier baby, not, in the, not only in the pregnancy and at birth, but for the rest of that baby's life. That was Andrew Prentice. And as always, there are longer versions of all this month's features on our website at lshtm.ac.uk. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.